Okay, good evening everyone. Thank you so much uh, for coming out on a yucky Sunday evening with a lot of things going on. So nice to see everybody. I'm not surprised, but I'm nice to see everyone. Um, we want to thank, uh, as usual, not just everybody for coming, to thank the Adult Education Committee, headed by Daniel Lowe, as usual, for bringing us such meaningful programming here to the shul. Um, as with most programming that we provide during the year, certainly adult ed, uh, we plan these events in the summer, multiple months before they ever occur, uh, with no knowledge of what's going to be taking place when we eventually have our speakers show up. Uh, but if I had to choose somebody to host in our shul, as Kalah Yisrael is facing the most extraordinary challenge that we faced in many decades, I would have chosen to invite Rabbi Shashachter. All of us who know Rabbi Shechter knows, know him to be a Rav and a role model for how to respond to challenge, to moments of crisis. Rabbi Shechter is the rabbi and spiritual leader of Yachad and at Camp Simcha, guiding so many of our young adults in how to interact and serve as caretakers and role models for individuals with disabilities and those suffering from serious illness. He's a particularly sensitive to how we as Jews respond to pain and suffering of other Jews and how to deal with our own personal and national challenges. Um, as many of you know, I just returned from a trip to Eretz Yisrael and Rabbi Shachter also took a trip of his own recently. And one of the many takeaways that I received from that trip was that people in Eretz Yisrael are watching what is happening here in America. And it matters to them. I cannot tell you how many soldiers said to me when I said I was from America, did you go to that thing in Washington, D.C. with 300,000 Jews? That was amazing. We were all watching. It matters to them. What we do, it matters that we care. It matters how we respond. We think that it, sometimes we think maybe, that doesn't matter so much and no one even pays attention. They're noticing and they're watching. And this is at least one of the reasons I'm so glad that Rabbi Shechter was willing to travel all the way from the five towns uh, to be with us this evening to continue to help us figure out how we respond to the events taking place in the world right here in America and certainly in Eretz Israel. Rabbi Shechter serves as the rabbi in Rosh Beit Midrash at the Young Israel of Woodmir, overseeing its extensive adult education programming. As I mentioned, he's the rabbi and spiritual leader of Yachad, the Orthodox Union's international program for individuals with disabilities. Since the summer of 2017, he has served as the rabbi of Camp Simcha, High Lifeline's camp for children battling cancer and chronic illnesses. Formerly served as assistant rabbi at Congregation Knesset's Israel, the White Shul in Farakaway. Rashai received his rabbinic ordination from Ritz after studying together with his father, Rabbi Herschel Shachter Shlita, for nine years. He also received an additional rabbinic ordination from his teacher and mentor of Usher Weiss of Yushalayim. Rashai holds an MA in Jewish Education and Administration from the Israeli Graduate School of Yeshiva University. Rabbi Shechter, I have the zuchos to say, is a, a good friend of mine, and I'm so uh, very honored to introduce him to speak to us today. <coughs> Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for coming out. I can say if this was my shul, I don't think there would be anyone other than myself. So uh, it's very heartwarming to be here together with all of you, especially on an evening like this one. I should not get any credit for coming all the way from the five towns. I was very nervous that there would be a lot of traffic, especially because there was supposed to be a shutdown of the bridge today. 
I think everybody was so nervous about the shutdown, there is no one on the bridge. <laughs> I was the only one. So it's a pleasure to be here. And Amir uh, Toshem, we should all come together for happy things and to talk about happier times. Uh, but I really am not here to depress anybody because I don't appreciate when people do that to me. And I think all of us have a lot of conflicting emotions that are running through our minds all at the same time. Uh, the rabbi just mentioned that I thank you for having me here in this beautiful building that I've never seen before. I think this is a beautiful part of the neighborhood that I've never even seen or heard of before. And it's uh, really special to be here. But the rabbi mentioned that he just came back from a trip. I still feel that I'm in a dark cloud since I came back from my trip a couple of weeks ago. It was very, very heavy, really painful, extremely complicated when you try to just digest everything that you've seen and everything that you've experienced, uh, to try to understand even some of it is very, very difficult and very challenging. You know, just this week, I mentioned in my shul that there's a family that I became close with about five weeks ago, actually brought these two women to Stern College to speak. They have five family members who are being held hostage in Gaza. Five, five family members. It's impossible to even wrap our heads around that. And they called me this week as they were waiting in the hospital in Beersheba because three of their family members, the three women, had been released and were then being brought from the army base to the hospital. And they called me as they were anxiously waiting for their family members to come. And they shared with me how tormented they were. On the one hand, they were so excited to see their three family members. They were hoping that they were somewhat okay. Who knows what's really going on inside, but at least physically they looked like they were walking from the car to the, uh, to the army base. So at least they knew that. On the other hand, they said, our father is still there. Our brother is still there. We don't really want to hear the stories about what they're living through. And we have no indication that there's going to be any end to this anytime soon. For two able-bodied men to get out doesn't seem, based on the laws of nature, that that's going to happen anytime soon. And they said how conflicted they were. They wanted to be there in the hospital to be supportive and to talk and to listen and to go through the experience. At the same time, they didn't want to hear any of it. And I felt, in some way, it's so much of what all of us are feeling. I, uh, I was very taken that I was speaking with Rabbi Ramon about a week or two ago, and when the whole hostage discussion began, he had told me that somebody mentioned to him that they weren't sure a family of hostages, should they make a bracha, and if so, which bracha should be recited. And he said that he thought perhaps the bracha of Hatova HaMetiv should be recited, but at the same time, he should also make a bracha of Adayin HaEmes. You should make a Hatova HaMetiv because how heartwarming it is to see people finally get out of captivity. At the same time, how can you not make a Dayan HaEmes when you see that there are Palestinian prisoners getting out and we know where they're headed in the next couple of years or months, and we know the terrible torment of those who are left behind, who are not being released yet. And these are the conflicting emotions that so many of us are feeling. So I don't think that it's the job of anyone to come here and make you feel that even more. We all know what we're supposed to be feeling. We don't really know how to process. I don't have the answers of how to process because I'm struggling just as much as everybody else is. But I'll just share with you what I've been thinking for myself. 
and a point that has been extremely emphasized to me over the last couple of weeks, something that has become extremely obvious to all of us. We live here in the United States, and I'll be honest, before I went to Israel, I'm curious if you felt the same way. I was nervous to go. I was nervous. You went during the ceasefire, but I didn't. I was a little bit nervous. I do have five little children at home and a wife and an entire family, and I was nervous. At the same time, I have four nephews serving in the IDF. I have three sisters who live in Israel, and I wanted to be there. And I also wanted to bring members of our community to feel and experience and to participate in any way that they can. I was very nervous to be there. When I landed, I felt much safer than I feel here. I walk the streets of Manhattan two days a week. I teach in Stern College on Tuesday and Thursdays. You feel what people think about you. You see it in Grand Central Station. We all understand what's happening and we see what's going on all around us. We've been singled out. We are held to a double standard. And you see these are allies and these are people who are otherwise pretty reasonable. We see people in top echelons of many different kinds of countries and governments. And we see people who are in all kinds of professions who seem to have lost their way and can't even think straight because what we're dealing with now is the problem of the Jewish people. And suddenly that becomes very morally unclear to them. (coughs) Suddenly everything becomes questioned. Suddenly there are no truths anymore. So when we are singled out, when they are pointing at us and holding us to a different standard, instead of looking at that negatively, which there's plenty of negativity to focus on, the way I've tried to process it is, think about who was the first one that singled us out. It in fact was not our enemies. It was actually the Rebona Shalom, it was God himself, because of his tremendous love for the Jewish people. Ahavti eschem amar Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I love the Jewish people, I appreciate the Jewish people. The Rebona Shalom, God chose us to be the Am HaNivchar, to be the Am Segula. So what exactly does that mean? We say it every day in our tefillah, we say it every day in our davening. Baruch Hu Elokeinu Shebrana Lechvodo V'Hivdilanu Minatoyim V'Nasanlanu Taras Emes V'Chayei Olam Nata Besochenu in Birchas HaTorah every day, we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Asher Bachar Mikol HaAmim. We're proud of the fact that we're singled out. We're not ashamed of it. So now we're being singled out in a very negative way. But in fact, the original singling out of the Jewish people was the most positive spirit that upheld what Jewish identity was all about. And that was branded by God himself, by the Rebona Shalom himself. So let's go back to that first occasion, to that first time, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu singled us out. When was that? On the occasion of Kabbalah Sator. On the occasion of Kabbalah Sator, we are told, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, Ve'atem tiyu li mamleches ko'anim v'goi kadosh in Parshas Yisro. You are going to be the ones who are singled out, the mamleches ko'anim v'goi kadosh. Now I ask you, I don't know how many kohanim we have in the room, but what exactly is the aspiration that all of us should be kohanim? I'm not a Kohen. My parents are not Kohanim. So what am I supposed to do? What does it mean that God wants all of us to serve as Kohanim? If you think about that carefully, you look in a Gemara Masechus Kiddushin and the Gemara has a discussion about what exactly is the nature of the job of a Kohen? Does a Kohen serve as Shlucha de Rachmana? Or does a Kohen serve as Shlucha Didan? What does that mean? 
Does the Kohen serve as the messenger of God? And he's supposed to be the bridge between God and the people? Or is the job, is the role of a Kohen to be the one who is the Shlucha Didan? He is our messenger. Look, most of us don't have the opportunity to spend our whole lives in the Beis HaMikdash. We can't do that. We have to work. We have to do other things. So we single out one faction of the Jewish people that are going to be doing the job for us. Are they doing the job for us? Or are they doing the job for God? Who are they representing? That's a discussion in the Gemara. But either way, what's clear in the Gemara is that they are supposed to serve as the bridge between the Rebona Shalom, between God himself and the people. How it works technically, whether they are representing us or representing him, doesn't really matter. But the job of a Kohen, the role of a Kohen in its essence is really that he's supposed to be the person, the individual, who serves as the bridge between spiritual matters and the mundane world. Most of us who inhabit and who live and who journey the world in its physical state don't have the opportunity, don't have the capacity or the ability to be focused on spirituality all the time. Of course, we have built-in reminders. We daven shachris, mincha, and mar. We say brachos all the time. Men wear tzitzis and women light Shabbos candles. And we have all kinds of different things that remind us throughout the journey of the year that we are connected, that there is a spiritual side to everything we do. But day to day, minute to minute, it's not really our focus. And the Kohanim have the job of trying to inspire us to understand that every part of our experience here on this earth is something that can be purposeful, is something that can be to a higher calling. And that is the job of every Kohen, and that in turn, says God himself, is the job of the Mamaleches Kohanim Vigoy Kadosh. That is our job. Our job is to be the conscience of the world, exactly how Hitler, Yamach Shemov, referred to the Jewish people. The Jewish people are the conscience of the world, as he wrote in Mein Kampf. That's what we are. We're supposed to be that. We are supposed to be a people that prove to the world that there is a higher calling, that there is something bigger than the small myopic view that I have of this world, of the small journey that I'm taking on my own. There's something much larger. There's a place, there's a destination that I want to get to. There's a purpose to every moment of life and every experience that I have. And that, making people understand that you can live life with purpose and with mission, is exactly what the job of Mamaleches Kohanim V'goy Kadosh is all about. We've heard so many times that there's a phrase that is thrown around about being the light onto the nations, the Or Lagoyim. You may think that that is something that was invented by some modern sects of the Jewish community. It's not. It's the words of Yeshaya Hanavi. And when Yeshaya Hanavi refers to us as the Or Lagoyim, what exactly did he have in mind? You ever wondered? What does he want us to teach the nations of the world? We should teach them about Shabbos. The Gemara says in Sanhedrin, Akum Shabbos, Misa. Shabbos is something that is a special, unique experience between God and the Jewish people. So much so that if you have one of the nations of the world who observes Shabbos, he's Chayiv Misa. So what should we teach them? Taras HaMishpacha? It's not really relevant to them. So what are we teaching them? Kashras? What are we sharing with the world? In what way are we the Or Lagoyim? I always wondered this till I finally decided, let me look in the Navi Yeshaya himself. I was really looking to see, what do the commentaries say? 
Much to my surprise, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know the Nevi'im as well as I should. But at least I was honest enough to look inside. And I noticed that the Navi himself describes what the aspiration of being the Or Lagaim is. If you just go further in that very same Pasuk, the Navi Yeshaya describes, so what is the job, what is the role of the Or Lagaim? Lifkoach enayim ivros. What does that mean? Lifkoach enayim ivros means we have so many people who walk around the world and they're completely blind. They can see, but they're just not seeing properly. They have no perspective. They have no understanding. They don't see a higher calling. They don't see that this is part of a larger journey. They're missing that. And in doing so, our job as the Or Lagayim is exactly that, to give perspective, to allow people to take their eyes, v'lifkoach enayim ivros. The Medrash writes, and actually in this week's Parsha, when Yosef recounts the dreams to his brothers that he has, he turns to his brothers and he says, Shimu, listen to me. Of course, if you're talking to them, they're going to listen. Maybe they're going to tune you out and they're not interested. So the Medrash writes, what were these words, Shimu, what does he mean when he says, listen up to what I'm saying? The answer explains the Medrash is, sometimes you can have a person who hears something, but who doesn't understand. So if I speak in a foreign language, nobody in this room speaks Chinese. So you may all hear me if I'm speaking in that language, but you have no understanding of the words that I'm saying. I may be saying things that are very offensive to you. You wouldn't know. So there's a difference between listening and hearing and understanding. And what Yosef turns to his brothers and says, don't just listen to the words that I'm saying because that's going to be very offensive to you. Of course, if you look at that at surface level, it's very upsetting. Your younger brother is forecasting what his future is going to be. Sounds very arrogant. It sounds very out of place. Who does he think he is? He's going to tell us. And I understand where you're coming from, but Yosef says, don't listen. I want you shimu. I want you to hear and understand and take perspective of what's happening. Look beyond yourselves. Try to understand the bigger picture of the Jewish people and where we are headed. And that's the same thing that God calls upon all of us to do. To be those people who are the Arla Gaim, which means I singled you out to be the ones who are given the task or given the responsibility of serving as those individuals who are able to open the eyes of others and make them have perspective. Make them be able to hear, make them be able to see, make them be able to appreciate and understand the larger context of what it is that's happening in the world, that we are all living life with mission, with purpose, and with drive for something much larger than ourselves. And the reason why it's so complicated is because, as we're going to say in Halal, every day of Hanukkah, we have the great privilege of saying Halal. I don't know about you, I have very conflicting feelings when we say Halal now. What are we saying Halal about? What are we thanking HaKadosh Baruch Hu for? The truth is, when you look at how many miracles have taken place, not only on October 7th, but since that time as well, you'll be overwhelmed to realize how much there is to say halal about. When I was in Eretz Yisrael, one of the people who organized our trip 
had thought it would be a good idea not only to show us what was happening in the South and to bring us to hospitals and shiva visits and all the very meaningful things, very sad and difficult, but meaningful things that we did. But aside from that, they said, you need to really understand that this is not a story about the South. This is the same story that is all around the country. And in doing so, they brought us to the border of Janin. There's this tiny little yeshuv there. It's called Ron Am, I think, or Rom Om, something like that. Never heard of this place. What is it? That wasn't the name of it. That's not where I was. No. No. But um, but we went to this community. It's a wonderful community where all people want us to live in peace. All people want us to be happy, to raise their children, to have their grandchildren come and play. And they showed us just how close they are to this hornet's nest of terrorism. And it is exactly the same. We went the day after we went to the south. We went up there. And you get to see there is absolutely no difference. There is no reason, al hateva, why the same uprising that happened in the south cannot just as easily happen there. In fact, when we were there, they were taking us to the lookouts that they have where the security stands in the middle of the night to see as people try to infiltrate the fences every night. And I was terrified. I said, why are we here? Like, get me out of here. They said, no, 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 it's, it's very safe. It's fine. I said, when was the last time you had an issue? About three weeks ago, somebody shot here. I wasn't. I said, so maybe we should leave. Yeah, you're safe here with us. Okay. I wasn't convinced. It wasn't so compelling. But it made them feel very good that we were willing to hold their hands and be there with them. So they bring us to this lookout right next to the fence. It was the identical fence, only much less sophisticated than the fence that is in the south, bordering Gaza. And we're standing there at the fence, and suddenly they all start yelling at us, get down, get down quickly onto the cement wall. And I said, what happened? They said, don't you see they're shining lasers at you? That means they can see you. It means who knows what's coming next, get back into the car. How can you live like this? How can people live like this? And when you realize that this is an existential threat on all sides, how many of us have ever thought about being in Yerushalayim? If Khalila v'chalila, there was an uprising in East Jerusalem, there is no fence. There is no protection. Im Hashem lo yishmar'ir, shav shakad shomer. David HaMelech said it as clearly as it can be stated. If the Ribbon Shalom, if God is not going to protect us, we have no protection. Every house that I went into in Kfar Aza, had the same stickers on their refrigerators. Peace now, all these activists, all they wanted is to be peaceful. All they wanted is to have good relationships with our neighbors. And you can advocate for that your whole life. And Rahman al-Islam, heaven forbid, look what happened. I'm not saying because, it's nothing to do with that. I'm just saying you can never be protected. It's the Ribbon Shalom who protects us and who decides what the fate of the Jewish people is going to be. So when we say Hallel... It's very confusing. On the one hand, we have so much sadness and so much heavy feeling and a heavy heart. At the same time, we have so much to be grateful for, that the Ribbon Shalom is protecting our people. Look what's happening. Look how this is unfolding. Look how much the Ribbon Shalom is protecting us. Look that against all odds, we are still here. 
And it's something very special and very meaningful to think about as we say hello. Just yesterday I was talking to Jen Early, who lost her son two weeks ago in Gaza. I actually don't know her, never met her. But somebody, Mechemesh, told me that she listens to my shiurim online and told me that it would be very meaningful to her if I called her. So I said, okay, it will be meaningful to anyone. I'm happy to do it. So I left her a message and we've been exchanging back and forth. And just yesterday, she left me such a powerful message. She said, you know, we just finished Shabbos and if I had to explain what my feelings were, my heart is so full at the same time as my heart is so broken. It was such an amazing way to describe the feelings that she has and the feelings that so many of us have. Our hearts are so full in gratitude for everything that the Rebona Shalom has and continues to do for us. And our hearts are so broken at the same time. Now she took it further and said her heart is so full because she believes that we're on the cusp of the Geula and it's a very short and temporary stage that she'll be separated from her son. Halavai, Shenizke Bekarov, that her feelings should come true. But the sentiment, the general sentiment that she made and that she shared is something that I think is so powerful and is so true. So one of the phrases that we say in Halal is kal ha'adam kozev. How do you translate those words? Kal ha'adam kozev means every man is a liar. Every man is dishonest. Now the more life experience that we all have, we start to see there may be some truth to that. But the truth is, who wants to live life like that, believing that every person they interact with is dishonest? I don't live like that. That's a very sad existence. You have to trust people at least a little bit. So what does it mean when David HaMelech says this striking condemnation that every person is kozev, every person is a liar, nobody's honest, can never trust anybody that comes near you that you interact with? <clears throat> what exactly does he mean? Or if Soloveitchik writes, my father told me many times, there, Soloveitchik explained what it means and he said, when man was first created, we are told that HaKadosh Baruch Hu took Afar Min HaAdama. What does it mean? Sometimes in the Chumash, when you have the, word, the letter He at the beginning of a word, it's a reference to the fact that there's something extra special that's being mentioned, that's being referenced. So what was so special about this Adama from which man was created? Why is it referred to as Afar Min HaAdama? What's so special about it? So the Medrash gives two different interpretations. Number one says the Medrash, HaKadosh Baruch Hu took Savar Afaro Mikol Rucho Sa'adama. The Rebona Shalom God took a little sampling of earth from all over the world, put that all together, and from there was created Adam Arisha. The second interpretation of the Medrash is HaKadosh Baruch Hu took Afar Min Ha'adama, which is the most holy and sacred ground, Haramoria, Harabayas, and from there man was created. Rav Soloveitchik suggested maybe these are not two conflicting opinions, but both of them are true. We were all created with a tremendous inner tension. You pick up the newspaper or you turn on the news and you see that something happened in Bangladesh. Why do you care? You ever been to Bangladesh? You ever met anybody from there? But we care. We should care. Why? 
The answer is because a part of me is Afar Minha Adama. I'm cosmopolitan. I'm all over. I was created from a sampling of the entire universe. Yes, what happens in another country does interest me, and it does matter to me. Even though it's people that I have no relationship with, it's a community that I've never met or never seen, never will see. But it matters to me. Because I was created, part of my fabric, part of my makeup is Afar Minha Adama. At the same time, we're conflicted. Because at our core and at our root, we are all connected with Yerushalayim and the Harabais. And throughout life, says Rav Salavechik, we are constantly being pulled by both of these tensions inside of ourselves. On the one hand, we have an interest in all kinds of different things that are very far away from Harabais. At the same time, there's something that is always pulling us back. It's hard to describe that feeling. When you go to Israel and you haven't been there in a long time, or when you go to Israel now, and you just feel very connected. It's hard to describe what it is. Why do you feel connected? What do you feel connected to? The answer is you feel connected to yourself. Because that's from where you were created. You're going back home. It's the same warm feeling that you feel when you go back to the home you grew up in. Because that's home to you. That's where you feel comfortable. That's the place that you know best. And says of Salavechik, that's all of life. And that's what it means, Kalha Adam Kozev. It doesn't mean every man is dishonest, every person is a liar. Rather, it means every human being has a tremendous amount of tension inside of themselves and a lot of confusion. And being pulled in different directions. And sometimes I'm pulled to Harabais, sometimes I'm pulled very far away from it. And it's confusing at times, and I don't know where to put myself, and I don't know exactly what the perspective should be. But that's part of the complication of what our journey is all about. And that, says the Navi, is what it means to be the people who are the Am HaNivchar, what it means to be the people who are the Orla Goyim, who give perspective. We too have different pulls that bring us in different directions, but we put it together and we have a Mahalach HaChaim, we have a way of life that makes us focus. We are the Am HaNivchar as HaKadosh Baruch who chose us to be. We are the Am Segula and we thank Him for that every day. But at the same time, we have a responsibility that comes along with that. Just in this past week's Parsha, we read the story of Yaakov Avinu and Sarah Shalesav. There's so much to say about that. I think in our generation, there is no one, at least from what I've read, there is no one that I've seen that has explained anti-Semitism better than Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I don't remember all of his books but I do know that probably in every single one of his books that I've read, he has the same paragraph, verbatim. Really, it's almost verbatim. In his Haggadah, in every book on Chumash, every one of his books on philosophy, Rabbi Sachs talks about this issue of anti-Semitism. It's something that was a recurrent theme in his tremendous thought that he shared with our generation. And the way he sums it up is so beautiful, it's so perfect. It's exactly what we experience. So let me just read you one paragraph. This happens to be from his Agada, but as I said, you can find this same paragraph in every single one of his books. He writes the following, Anti-Semitism is not a unitary phenomenon, a coherent belief or ideology. Jews have been hated because they were rich, and Jews have been hated because they were poor. Jews have been hated because they were capitalist, and Jews have been hated because they were communists. Jews have been hated because they believed in tradition, and Jews have been hated because they were rootless cosmopolitans. Jews have been hated because they kept to themselves and because they penetrated everywhere. Anti-Semitism is not a belief, but rather a virus. The human body has an immensely sophisticated immune system. 
which develops defenses against viruses. It is penetrated, however, because viruses mutate. Anti-Semitism mutates. It's the same virus, but it continues to mutate in every generation. Just think about the different experiences of anti-Semitism that we have experienced as a people. So just 80 years ago, they believed that the Jewish people were subhuman beings, had no right to be a part of the human race. When Paro described the issue with the Jewish people, what did he say? The Jewish people are too powerful. It's too much happening. We have to strike them now because they're growing too much. They're going to overtake us. How many times have you heard the tropes of those who say the Jews run the media and the Jews pay off all the politicians? Halavai, we would even be powerful enough in this small community of Tinak to make sure that the members of the political committee are not pro-Palestinians. We can't even have that. Right? One of the Rabbanim told me, you've been fighting that? Astounding. We can't even get our own communities to listen to us where we have such a strong Jewish population. So we know that anti-Semitism just changes face. It mutates every generation. But the truth is, it all started in this week's Parsha where we have Yaakov Avinu <coughs> and his struggle with the Sarah Shalesav. And it's fascinating. When you read that story after an entire evening of Yaakov Avinu fighting with the Sarah Shalesav, he finally turns to him and he says, Hagidana Shemecha, tell me your name. Only to get a response of Lamaza Tishalashmi. Now I ask you, is that so unusual? If you spent an entire night engaging someone in a conversation, let alone fighting with someone for a whole night, wouldn't it be the respectful thing, at least at some point, to say, can you tell me who you are? Why is that such an unreasonable request? And after all, his question isn't even answered. He does not say, the Sarah Shalesav does not say, I'm not allowed to share with you my identity, I can't disclose. Sarah Shalesav does not say, I don't have a name. All he says is, now, if I were Yaakov Avinu, I would say back, I'm asking your name because I'd like to know who you are. Simple. So what is this dialogue? And so many of the Mephoshim explain. The question that Yaakov Avinu was asking was not only about his interaction with Sarah Shalesa, but he wanted to know, the Jewish people are going to continue to struggle throughout the millennia of Jewish history, and I want to know, what exactly is your identity? What do you stand for? How can we properly prepare ourselves to combat our enemies? To try to understand what you're all about. What is your essence? Hagitin Hashemecha doesn't mean tell me your name. It means tell me your essence. Explain to me who you are. And he responds by saying, I can't. Lama because in every generation it's going to evolve. It will continue to change. And even if I tell you now, what I represent, it's not reflective of what it's going to be in 50 or 100 or 1,000 years from now. Anti-Semitism continues to be something that challenges us. And on Hanukkah, of course, we celebrate one kind of victory. On Purim, we have a different kind of victory. And we have had enemies that were very different 
had very different interests. They all wanted the same end goal, but they had different ways of coming at it with us. And we've seen that throughout all the stories of Jewish history, Nazism and general anti-Semitism and terrorism now as we see it, and socialism and communism, and all those different things, all the different movements that we've seen that have challenged our people, all came at it from a very different perspective. We think that it's all the same. And in some way, in its essence, it is. But so many different faces that present themselves to us. The Gemara in Meseches Megillah has an interesting story. If you've learned Meseches Megillah, you probably glanced over the story, didn't really pay attention to it, because it doesn't seem like such an important story. But very often when we read Megillah's Esther, you read the story of the Megillah, and you get the impression that Haman was awful, Haman was terrible, genocide, and Achashverosh was just going along with the plan. He didn't really care either way. The Gemara tells us that's not really what happened. Haman and Achashverosh held hands together, had every interest in destroying the Jewish people together. Haman may have been a little bit more outspoken. He may have been the one who came up and devised the plan. But Haman and Achashverosh really were working in tandem the entire time, throughout the plot, throughout the story. And there, the Gemara tells us, you know, if you want to understand the relationship between Haman and Achashverosh, we're going to give you a mushal to understand it. Now, when the Gemara gives us a mushal, it's because there's something that I had trouble understanding without this mushal. And with this parable, with the story, it will help you really gain a deeper understanding of what it is that we're trying to convey. So listen to the following mushal. Says the Gemara, mushal abal hatel ubal there were two neighbors who lived next door to each other and they each met in the supermarket one day. And each of them was complaining to the other, as Jews like to do. And the Gemara says, one of them turns to his friend and he says, you know, I have such a wonderful field. I would love to use it to make money, to plant things. The problem is I have this huge mound of dirt in the middle. It's going to cost me so much money to remove it. It's almost not worth it. So here I have a beautiful field with nothing that I can use it for. His neighbor says, it's so interesting you say that because I have the opposite problem. I have a beautiful field in my backyard. I'm also unable to use it because there's a very deep ditch in the middle of my yard and it will cost me so much money to buy dirt to fill it. So they shake hands and they say, we have a great idea. How about you come every day and take some dirt and finally fill up your pit? And at the end of a month or two, we'll both be happy. There won't be a mound in my field anymore. There won't be a ditch in your field. And we'll both be able to make money. Says the Gemara, that is the story. That is the relationship of Haman and Achashverosh. You got it? (laughs) Thought so. So what does that convey? How does that help us understand anything about Haman and Achashverosh? Sir Avasher Weiss once told me, an amazing interpretation. I saw in a Sefer once, subsequently, that they say this in the name of the Chassam Sofer. The Chassam Sofer himself doesn't write it, but some say that he said such a thing. I don't know. Either way, it's an amazing interpretation. That story is really the story of anti-Semitism. There are different reasons why people hate the Jewish nation, the Jewish community. Sometimes it's because, like Paro said, The Jewish people are becoming way too powerful. 
You know, in the times of the Spanish Inquisition, the Abarbanel was the finance minister of the government. The Abarbanel, the one whose commentaries in every Chumash, was the finance minister at the time of the Spanish Inquisition. Sometimes Jews are hated because they're too powerful. It's like a tail. It's like a big mound in the middle of one's field. It's just growing and growing. It's a problem that is insurmountable. We can't get by it. We don't know what to do about this issue. There are other generations where they look at the Jews and they don't see them as this very powerful, highly educated, very sophisticated nation. They see them as subpar, subhuman beings. They're a ditch beneath the surface of the ground. They're a problem beneath the surface of humanity. But the truth is, those two neighbors come together and hold hands and say, you feel this way, I feel the other way. The bottom line is we both hate the Jewish people equally. We both have one common interest, and that is to get rid of the problem of the Jews from the world. And that is the story of anti-Semitism. You'll notice that when we say Allah Nisim on Hanukkah, we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for so many different aspects of what we're grateful for. Allah Nisim, Vala Gvuros, Vala Chuos. Amazing. This astounding miracle that unfolded on Hanukkah in so many different ways, both the Melchama and also the great miracle of the Pach Shemen, of rededicating the Beis Amikdash. An amazing spectacle. Everybody saw it. And yet, we throw in something there, thanking HaKadosh Baruch Hu for the Melchama. Who is possibly grateful for a Melchama? I have somebody who I try to call often now. I hope all of us are trying to call everybody we know in Israel as much as we can. It's not good enough to text. Make time to call them. This person told me he hardly goes home during the day. He used to go home all the time. He told me he hardly goes home during the day. Comes home very late at night. Leaves very early in the morning. Because he's terrified that somebody's going to knock on the door or ring his bell. And it's, God forbid, going to be a representative of the IDF coming to tell him about the fate of one of his children. He said, I just can't be home. I know it's terrible for my family. I just can't be there if that ever happens. Living with that kind of anxiety, living in understanding, you kissed your children goodbye, the people who you love most in the world, and you don't know if you'll ever see them again. Who's grateful for Emil Chama? Somebody just showed me last week, there was an article, that the Israeli economy is losing a billion dollars a day. Now, for a stable government and a stable economy, I assume there's a way to bounce back. I, I don't know exactly how that works. But who's grateful for, for a Melchama? As much as so many people in Israel, I know we all became geopolitical experts in the last few weeks, and everybody knows better. And of course, the American government is pressuring, the Israeli government's making all the wrong decisions. I assume the same discussion here as we have with all the experts in the five towns. Um, and you think about all of this at the same time who wasn't somewhat relieved last week 
ceasefire is good, ceasefire is bad. I, I don't know. I have no way of knowing. Was it worth it for the hostages or not? Does the halacha allow it? I, I have no idea. I thank the Rebona Shalom every day that I am not in a position to have to worry about these decisions. I don't know. I don't know how I would live with myself. But weren't you relieved a little bit? You're not going to hear about Chayalim getting killed every day. I'm terrified to turn my phone on in the morning. Every single day for the last few weeks. You turn your phone on in the morning and you know what you're going to see. And that means the dreams of a young Chayal means the aspirations of his family. Who's grateful for a Mulcham? So next week we're going to say al and we're going to thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for all the miracles and all the great things he did and for giving us the opportunity to have a Mulcham. So what do we mean? It's the question that was posed by the Panavizhirov. Rabbi Yosef Kahanaman, he wondered, what is our gratitude that we have for a Malchama? After all, we refer to the Torah as Derachea Darachei Noam. The Torah is supposed to be one which is peaceful. We don't like Malchama. Forgetting about the personal issues we have with Malchama, the Torah is a life and a journey that's refreshing. It's supposed to be calm, beautiful, and peaceful. So what is this Malchama that we're so happy about, that we're thanking the Ribbon Shalom for? And he suggests... Perhaps the Malchama that we're grateful for is the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us and continues to give us the fortitude. He allows us to have the bravery and the stamina to stand up and fight the moral Malchama of the Jewish people for the last few thousand years. It's very exhausting. It's been a very exhausting <coughs> journey standing up alone. Se'achas ben shivim ze'evim. Yaakov Avinu in this week's parsha is left alone by Ivaser Yaakov Levado. Avram Avinu is referred to as Avram Ha'ivri because he was from Aver Hanar. He was from the other side of the river. But yet we find the personality much later on in history. Yonah Hanavi is on the bottom of the boat. The boat is capsizing. Nobody knows what to do when they approach this man on the bottom la- la- layer of the boat. And they come to him and they say, Who are you? And he says, Ivri Anochi. Why are you an Ivri? Do you come from the other side of the river? What do you mean you're an Ivri? The answer is that Jews have always been me'ever hanar. Jews have always been alone. They've always been fighting that moral fight. And we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for allowing us to have the courage and the commitment to continue to be those individuals who stand up for truth, who stand up for morality, who stand up against the indecencies of the world, who stand up against the profanity and the sheker mukhlat and the dishonesty of the world. I was in the UN last week. I've only been to the UN twice in my life, and that was twice in the last five weeks. And you look at this building, all I said to myself was chaval on the real estate. I was waiting for the session to begin. I was sitting there with a safer, and somebody posted a picture of me online. And he showed me later what the caption was. It said, at least there's one honest thing going on in this building. (laughs) And it's true. You look, last week they had a day which commemorated the strides we've made in women's rights. How safe women feel all over the world. And how we champion those rights and how happy we are about that. And nobody, 
an entire day celebrating that in the UN, nobody was able to bring themselves to recognize the atrocities that were done to Jewish women on October 7th. This is the hypocrisy of the world. I'm sure all of us saw the BBC reporter two weeks ago who had no shame to stand up on live TV and ask the representative of the Israeli government, so you're talking about hostage exchanges. You see the moral inequivalency here. You see the proportionality that's so off. How could it be that you take one Israeli for five Palestinian prisoners? Doesn't that show that you have no respect for Palestinians? You believe that five Palestinians equals one. Doesn't that show how much you hate the Palestinian people? I couldn't even believe what I was hearing. How can you be so absurd to say such a thing? You're not embarrassed? I was asked by Fox News to do an interview a few weeks ago. I don't do interviews. I have no idea why they got to me. And Fox is very pro-Israel for the most part, I think. So I agreed to do the interview, but I said, I don't do live interviews. I don't know how to do this. Let's see how it comes out. I don't know. So I said, what are we talking about? We're talking about Israel. What about Israel? I said, I'm no expert on Israel. Well, we wanted a rabbi from America. Fine. So what do you want to talk about? We want to talk about the hostage crisis. Fine. I said, I'm very comfortable talking about the hostage crisis. Let's have a discussion. I get on, really lovely woman, very, very sweet, very nice. She says, you know, literally the first question. You know, there's different narratives in the whole story, and this is very complicated, the history. So I said, would you mind if I stopped you right here? I'm just curious. Can you tell me what about a narrative has to do with a 10-month-old baby being taken captive into enemy territory without her parents? Which I didn't think was such a difficult question. And I've never seen anything like this. Let's just say this segment was not aired. But this woman just sat on the screen, just looking at me, speechless. So I asked her, did you do any homework before we had this interview? Did you not know that there are 10-month-old babies that are there? You don't know that there are 30 children that were held hostage? Well, we went on to the next issue. But when you see the hypocrisy, the sheker, the dishonesty, It's like you're almost embarrassed for the people that say things. I don't think they're evil. I mean, maybe some of them are. I don't know. But they don't even hear what they're saying. They can't even internalize what they're saying. It's so absurd. Are you not proud to be the people who stand up and fight the melchama of all that is right? Just on Thursday night, I was asked to come speak at a very small dinner of seven people and Governor Kathy Hochul. She's the governor of New York State. I know it's very far from you. (laughs) But she was in Manhattan for a dinner with seven Hasidim. Don't ask. (laughs) And they needed someone who would be able to articulate something about Israel. So I was asked to come. And I, of course, thanked her for her leadership and for going to Israel and for standing with Israel. And spoke a little bit about the issue. And she was very emotional. She was very touched. And at some point she said to me at the end, if I went to Israel because I had a long-standing relationship with the Jews, I don't think that's the reason why I went. If it's because I represent the greatest Jewish population outside of Israel, it's also not the reason I went. She said, which decent person wouldn't go to Israel 
when you see what the two sides are. And she told me that every day since she's come back, she has had those who are pro-terrorism standing outside of her office and picketing ever since she's come back. And she said, there's no greater sign to me that I know that I'm correct for what I did than those protesters outside. There are people out there who understand. There are people out there who have it right. But aren't we proud? You feel bad that you're the one who's being singled out? Don't you feel proud about the fact that you have the opportunity to stand up and say, I will fight this fight, yes, I stand for truth. Yes, I believe in something that the rest of the world is not able to look at with a clear set of eyes. Is that not something to be proud of? That we have not gotten tired over the last few thousand years? That the Jewish people are still holding on strong? That we are still thriving? That we're still willing to do everything that is required to win this fight? We don't thank God, we don't thank the Ribbona Shalom for wars. We thank him for giving us the courage and the stamina to continue to fight this war. Rav Salavechik wrote a very famous book called The Lonely Man of Faith. And I remember there was a movie that came out. I don't remember who made the movie about Rav Salavechik's life a couple of years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago. So before they showed it publicly, they sent my parents an advanced copy. They wanted them to watch it because they wanted my father to speak, I think, when it was being shown publicly for the first time. So he said he wanted to see it. So I sat with my father and I watched it. And I remember his first comment was, the music on this video was so depressing. So he said, I know why they put depressing music on. So I said, why? Did he live such a depressed life? So he said, no. He said, they're not understanding what it means when the Rav wrote his book and termed it as the lonely man of faith. It doesn't mean he was lonely and he was disenfranchised and he felt uncomfortable about the fact that he was alone in his life and very depressed. Lonely man of faith means he was describing what it means to be the Jewish people who are the lonely men of faith. Nothing to be depressed about, everything to be proud of. We are the lonely men of faith. We are the Am HaSefer. We are the people of the book. And we've held on to the book for the longest time and we are proud of it. This is not something to be depressed about. This is not sad music. This is something to be very, very proud of. And that is what we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for when we mention those words on Hanukkah and throughout the Yom Tif of Al Hanisim. Let me just close. I see it's late. I assume nine o'clock. We're supposed to finish. <clears throat> Let me just close with one final comment. I'm sure by Krohn spoke about his trip. I'm, I'm sure you shared a lot. We all experience the same things. But this picture is one for me. It just hit home for me. This, you can't see it so well from afar, but I can show it to anyone afterward. This is from Kibbutz near Oz. Venture to say most of us never heard of this Kibbutz before a few weeks ago. Wonderful, thriving Kibbutz Jewish community but it's a very small community. And in that community, they don't have mailboxes by each person's home. They have one big set of mailboxes in the front of the kibbutz and everybody comes every day, picks up their mail. Now each one obviously has the name of family on it. 
If you look at this picture now, you'll see what's on it. You see these red stickers? Those red ones say Nirzach or Nirzacha. The black ones say Chatuf or Chatufa. The blue one over here says Meshuchreret. So you have a couple here that was both taken captive. So you have the husband who's still left behind. It says Chatuf on his mailbox and his wife. It says Meshuchreret. You have five family members here who were all killed. It says Nirzach and Nirzacha. This to me made me understand the gravity, the intensity of what it is that we're talking about. So that community in Nir Oz was a community of, was a community of 400 people. I think they said one out of every three or four was either captured or killed. Completely devastated. So we talk about a geula. And on Hanukkah especially, we look forward by Yama Mahem, We all want a geula. What exactly does it mean to experience a geula? Every time someone gets sick, God forbid, in our communities, so people say, we need Mashiach. So I wonder, anybody here in the medical profession? I assume. Someone? Right. What's your plan when Mashiach will come? What are you going to do? Whenever someone gets sick, everybody says we want Mashiach. The implication of that is, I assume, when Mashiach comes, no one's going to be sick. I asked my students in Stern College, you're planning to go to medical school. That means you have another 10 years ahead of you. Do you not believe that Mashiach is going to be here in the next 10 years? So you do believe he's going to come. So what are you going to do? I don't know. So what exactly does the experience of Mashiach and Geula really mean to you? I've asked this to teenagers in my community only because I'm interested to hear what they say. So adults say no one's going to get sick. Teenagers say money's going to be falling from the tree. It's going to be awesome. Those of us who work hard are going to say, ah, oh, we won't have to work anymore. Life's just going to be blissful. I don't know. Everybody has their ideas. So the Dubna Magid gives the following mashal to understand. What's Mashiach all about? So he says, there's a young child. You ever took your young children to a wedding? It's very exciting for them. Truth is, they have no idea what's happening. But they're very excited. And for weeks in advance, they're talking about this wedding. They have no clue what a wedding actually is. They show up at the wedding. This young boy walks in and he sees a room that's all set up, hundreds of chairs, and he sees a long aisle down the middle with a canopy at the end, and a young man and a young woman standing next to each other. So he walks right down the aisle, taps the young man on the shoulder, and he says, I'm curious, so many people are here, everybody looks pretty happy, but I don't know, something about you looks much happier than everybody else. Why are you so happy? He says, well, I'm the chassan. Of course I'm happy. Well, Kid says, this is my first wedding. I really don't know what that means. Can you, do you care to maybe explain it to me? He says, well, look around, you know. I've never worn a tuxedo that looks this nice. And I got a new pair of shoes. Look at these cufflinks somebody bought for me. Look what kind of food we have out there. The band, it's amazing. This is amazing. 
So this young child turns to the young woman and says, okay, um, everybody in the room looks very happy. A lot of women are here. For some reason, you look much happier than everybody else. Can you tell me maybe, what are you so happy about? She says, well, I'm the Kala. So what does it mean to be a Kala? So she tells him, well, I came here at four o'clock in the morning to get my makeup done. (laughs) I've been working on this gown for the last six months. I keep going for fittings. I feel like a princess. Look at this jewelry I have. All my friends are here. It's amazing. Says the Dubna Magid, how long do you think this marriage is going to (laughs) last? Naomi, what do you say? (laughs) Recipe for a disaster. Because if at the moment of your greatest excitement, all you're focusing on is all the externals. You're focusing on the gown and on the jewelry and on the makeup and on the tuxedo and all the food and the band and everything else. You're not understanding what the essence of the moment is really about. You don't get it. Why are you excited under the chuppah? You're excited because I'm finally being committed for the rest of my life to the person who I love and appreciate more than anybody else, who I want to journey through all of life together with. That's why I'm excited. Now, is it true that none of us have ever been to a wedding where the kala didn't wear a gown or where there wasn't music and there weren't nice things that were happening? Yes, of course. That's part of the experience, but that's not the essence of what it is. You're distracted if that's all you're thinking about at the moment of your celebration. Writes the Dubna Magid, we all have our own imaginations of what Mashiach is going to look like, what that essence of time is going to feel like. What is that experience going to be like for all of our communities? I don't know. But you need to remember what the essence is. Will money be falling from the trees? Maybe. Will nobody ever get sick again? It could be. That's not the essence. That's all the externals. The essence is, as the Navi says, Sos Asiz Hashem, Togel Nafshi Belokai. We feel so distant from the Ribbon Shalom. We don't understand the way he runs his world. We have so many questions about how things happen and why they happen the way they do. Finally, we'll come into a relationship where we'll have a clear and deep understanding of everything. Finally, we'll be in a place where we feel that God is very close to us. That's the essence of why we want a geula. That's when we say, What happened in the story of Hanukkah? They won the war. That was one piece of the story. In essence, what happened was, they came back to a loving relationship with the Ribbonu Shalom again. They realized that God loved them. And they came back to Him. That's what we ask for. That's what we want to experience. And everything else is secondary. It may be a part of the experience, it may not be. But that's all a secondary, external part of what we look forward to. It's not the essence of what Geula is all about. So I mentioned that I've come close to these, this woman who has five family members. Baruch Hashem, three of them are back. We hope and we pray every day that all of them, everyone will come back from all the different families. But she shared with me the last text message conversation that she had with her father on October 7th, as things were unfolding. She was supposed to be there for Yom Tif as well, in near Oz. 
And for some strange reason, she chose to go away with her children to another community very far away from the south. So her father writes to her at 10.09 a.m. And she sent me the screenshots of this. It's here. Her father writes to her, There's, There are terrorists that are next door to the house that I'm in. We locked ourselves in the safe room. We're hoping that no one's going to come in here. She writes back to her father, 10, 12 a.m. Abba, tinalu, make sure you lock the doors and lock yourself in the room and don't let anyone in. Makore, Abba. He writes back to her, Yesh mechablim machutz, anachnus gurim, we are locked up. Hashchenim shomim osam tzoakim ba'aravit. We hear people are screaming in Arabic. There's something very wrong here. She writes back to him 20 minutes later, Abba, yesh chadash? What's happening? He writes back, they've infiltrated into a number of the homes around us. Here, they didn't come in. 11.03 a.m. They've come into our house. We hear so much destruction in our house. And the rabbi can tell you, you walked into those houses and you saw the houses are bombed out. The only description that made me feel I could put it into words was the descriptions that I've read over years of those who liberated concentration camps. That's what it felt like being there. We had to sanitize our shoes afterward because they were so filled with blood five weeks later. You cannot imagine what's happening. He writes to his daughter, Yeshua Ashim Babayit, there's a lot of noise in the house. Nikavelatov, Nishikot. And he sends her his love. Abba news that Savalo. How can anyone believe? What, what do you mean? They're breaking into everyone's houses? Must be the army. He says, Lo, Dovkim Badelat Shovimakol. The army wouldn't do this. They're smashing everything. They're breaking down all the doors. This is not the army. She writes back, Efwatsava. Did you call the army? Abba to Davhusha Temim Sukha. Why don't you call the army and tell them? That you need help? And he no longer is able to read her messages. And the last message she sent him was Abba Ta'anebevakasha. And when I think about this exchange, all I can think is it's the same question we've been asking our Father. For the last 3,000 years. So much craziness. So much upheaval. So much destruction and so much difficulty. And our question to him continues to be. Abba ta'aneba v'akasha. When are you going to answer the Jewish people? And that is what we pray for. That is what we all look forward to. As we say this Hanukkah. Bayami mahem. Bazman hazeh. We thank the Rebona Shalom for allowing us to continue to have the strength. I know I'm over time. Can I say one, one more great part from my father? <laughs> I can go for another few hours. I'm sorry. But my father once told me something I, I've never seen it anywhere, but it's a beautiful insight. And we say brachos every morning. So maybe you'll think about it tomorrow morning. We say two brachos that sound very similar. 
We say Hanosein Layoif Koach. And we say Ozer Yisrael Bigvura. It's the same thing. He gives us strength and he gives us strength. So what's the difference? So my father told me that Hanosein Layoif Koach means we work hard, we're exhausted at the end of the day, we need to wake up in the morning. So God gives us the strength to keep going. He lets us go to sleep. He lets us wake up. We thank him in the morning. You let me wake up. It's a gift. Every morning it's a gift. Like the Gemara says, when you go to sleep at night, it's echad mishishim mimisa. In some way, it's similar to death. And it's not a given we're going to wake up in the morning, but God gives us that opportunity to wake up in the morning and to have strength once again. Ozer Yisrael Bigvura is not talking about that. Ozer Yisrael Bigvura is thanking God for giving us the ability to be strong, to have stamina. You need to be strong to be a Jew. It's much easier to go another route. It's very difficult to live the Jewish life with all the questions that we have, legitimate questions, with all the challenges that the Jewish people face. We thank the Rebona Shalom every day in our davening. Not only that he gives us physical strength, but that he gives us the emotional wherewithal. Ozer Yisrael Begvura that he gives us the eternal strength to be the people who we are. And we ask him, When is going to come the time when God will finally answer us? When the Rebona Shalom's phone will not just go silent. When the Rebona Shalom will come and those words of the Navi, Sos asiz Hashem tagel nafshi belokai when we talk about that aspiration that we have for Geula and we understand what the essence of that is all about, when we appreciate that Geula is meant to be the time when we're going to be reacquainted with our most beloved, when we'll finally have the opportunity to understand and appreciate what this relationship is all about, that's what we look forward to. That's what we ask for. That's what we pray for this year on Hanukkah. We thank God for those ongoing Melchamos, where he allows us to be the ones who are the moral compass of the world. We have been and we continue to be. And we are proud of being the lonely men of faith. But we ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu, this fight and this struggle has been wearing us down. And it's become very, very complicated. And we ask the Rebona Shalom to do those miracles for us the same way he did for our ancestors to allow us to once again have that appreciation that our forefathers had of what HaKadosh Baruch Hu represents. When they came back to the Beis HaMikdash, we hope, as I said, by Yamin Mahim, Bazman Hazer, thank you all for coming once again, and I wish you an uplifting and most meaningful Hanukkah.